Welcome to Generally Curious, your gateway to the world of generalists. I'm Millie. And I'm Lindsay. Together, we're embarking on a journey to uncover the stories, insights, and wisdom of some of the most dynamic and versatile minds of our time. We dive into the experiences of those who break the mold, those who dare to blend, mix, and weave through various disciplines and industries. From entrepreneurs and artists to scientists and educators, our guests are the embodiment of curiosity and adaptability, paving their own path in the future of work. So whether you're a budding generalist, a seasoned polymath, or simply someone who loves a good story of innovation and resilience, you're in the right place. Get ready to be inspired, to think differently, and to embrace the endless possibilities that come from being generally curious. Welcome to Generally Curious, the podcast that uncovers the stories of those who venture beyond the ordinary. I'm Millie. And I'm Lindsay. Today, we're excited to delve into the world of innovation with our guest, Robert Barris, the Chief Innovation Officer at Brightwell. Robert's role as a CIO is more than just a title. It's about transforming ideas into tangible business outcomes. Today, we'll unravel what it really means to be a Chief Innovation Officer and how Robert's journey led him to this pivotal role. Robert's experience is vast, spanning across working with Fortune 500 executives to driving new market opportunities and ventures. We're going to dive into the lessons he's learned about creating meaningful organizational change in these high-stakes environments. We'll also explore his insights on how large companies can maintain the agility and innovative spirit of a startup, a challenge that many organizations face as they grow. And it's not just about business strategies. Robert's unique perspective is also shaped by his passion for improv comedy. We'll discover how this creative outlet has influenced his professional life. Plus, we're getting into the future. Robert's predictions on the evolution of work, organizational design, and the next big thing in innovation. So get ready for an episode filled with insights, laughter, and maybe a few surprises. Let's welcome Robert Barris to Generally Curious. Welcome, Robert, to Generally Curious. I am so delighted to have you with us. How are you going today? I'm great. I'm stoked to be here. This is uh, this is gonna be like a conversation with friends. We you know, this, yes. is, this should be great. Yes, one hundred percent. So, Robert, you are the Chief Innovation Officer at Brightwell. Yeah. Now, innovation is a ambiguous term. Right. And many folks listening to this may not have ever heard of a chief innovation officer. So what is a CIO and what has your journey to CIO looked like? So in my journey to get to CIO, I had to learn about, of course, what is innovation, right? And and innovation is actually quite ambiguous. One of the reasons it's so ambiguous is that most companies actually don't do a good job of defining it. So it's a pretty wild piece. Lindsay, I got you with something. What happened, Lindsay? Talk to me about what just happened. I need to know. I've been jaded by the startup world now after a decade of being in and around it. And I'm just very much chuckling at even the word innovation. It's a little cringy. I have a, like, honestly, I sort of have a little bit of a cringy (laughs) title and yet it can do good stuff. So, so, so here's here's the framing, right? So number one, you got to define it, right? And it can mean actually a lot of different things. So that's the first part of the puzzle. The second part is the way I define it is the way I've had to deliver value, which I can also describe the word value uh, or define it in many organizations. It's about revenue generation. It's about creating something net new for a business 
that goes to the top line growth of the organization. Now, it absolutely can be about process innovation. So it could be, you know, if we think about a business model, it can be all about how we actually operate as a company. So it could be about process innovation. It could be about service design, like the back half of how our company operates and where we can touch the lives of employees and make that experience that much better and more efficient. So it really can't have a lot of definitions, but the challenge with the word innovation is if you don't define it, you're probably not going to have a job very long because you're actually not going to know, did I succeed? Right. So, so obviously you report into the chief executive officer. Uh, a lot of times a board of directors is the oversight to, of course, the entire organization. And they're going to ask, besides being a cost center, what did innovation create? And so, so again, so often what I'll do is I'll, I'll work with people in my agency life prior to working for a brand. But in my agency life, I would help other innovators define innovation. And so lots of different permutations of it. But again, it really can just be in my world about defining around like, how do I, how do I get to a revenue generating opportunity? And so that's the high level of innovation, at least in my world. And then what I do for Brightwell very specifically is I'm, I'm trying to do essentially market scanning and also domain exploration. So market scanning is like, where, where are people investing money in payments today, right? Where do they spend their time and energy, whether that's through acquiring startups or technology, or it's, Hey, we're, we're putting VC money behind a series of different funds. And therefore, we believe that whatever fraud is an area that we want to explore. Well, I need to know about that and I need to be able to bring that information back into the organization because that might tell us, well, there's an opportunity there. And then the second part, when we talk about specific domains is really around problem areas or functional areas in an adjacent area specific in my world to payment. So to be very specific, you know, to do a cross-border payment, uh, it's everything from identity verification all the way through to fraud and compliance, making sure you're not sending money abroad, that could end up in the hands of terrorists, right? So it's a heavily regulated field of work. And so in my world, I might say, well, what if I explored the fraud space? And what if I explored how many startups or enterprise companies are are there? What problems they solve for? And do we see an opportunity in that space? Is it too crowded? Do we think we could wedge into it? And and wow, there's there's an unmet need there. So it really can be a very opportunity-centered and honestly, human-centered practice for innovation in the what we're solving for, and of course, in the who we're solving for. So at the end of the day, you got to define it. It's got to be really clear because your goal should be based on that, right? I'm, I'm gold in such a way where we got to learn, right? So part of innovation can be revenue generating. Part of it can be about learning, right? And if our organization never learns anything, well, maybe we have risks now that we're not seeing, right? There could be competitors or disruptors that come in just like a startup, right? And so um, that's at a high level, what I would say, I'll pause there and uh, see where we go. One question on that. If our listeners are tuning into this, they're listening and they're saying, does my company need a chief innovation officer? Like what stage company, what, what, are, the, what are the indicators that leadership should be looking out for when they think, should I bring in a CIO? It's a, it's a really great question. Here's a couple of ways to think about it. And I want to I want to pay homage to Lindsay because I know, again, innovation is kind of a crappy word. And if you live in the startup space, you would say, like, we're all innovative, right? And it's largely true. Here, here's how I would think about it. If you're a growth stage company, and, and, and growth stage, again, can be a little ambiguous, just like saying the word SMB. I don't know if you love the, the term SMB. SMB, by the way, can be a million to like a billion dollars. It doesn't make any sense, right? It's just, it's like this really ambiguous space. If you're probably above 50 million in revenue, and you have hundreds of employees, and you feel like you found product market fit, it is more likely than less likely that innovation as as a practice or a function could help your organization. However, 
it really depends on, again, like kind of what your goals are as a company. So for instance, if you're in AI and your company is starting to find product market fit, well, you're still bringing something new to the marketplace, right? And so innovation, if it's really about net new value creation, uh, your, your company's already doing it. Like the whole company is, is sort of rallying around that. However, if you're seeing number one, hey, we have such a market share now where we have to just optimize a lot. All right, we're optimizing marketing, we're optimizing sales, we're optimizing the product. You're still going to have good growth over you know, an annual basis. But if you're saying to yourself, either our shareholders or our board of directors is saying, what's next? Well, I might make the argument, who has time for what's next? Right? Most organizations are actually built around almost solidifying an, oper- an operating model that allows the company to be the best version of itself. And so you're, you're literally designing almost for optimization, right? And so whether it's the functional areas of your organization, your roles and responsibilities, even how decisions are made, you're just trying to get that to be a well-run machine. Who has the time, quote unquote, to look for what's next? And the answer is not many people. People are incentivized and they're tasked with running parts of the organization. So in theory, no one has the time for that. So even though Google, we've, we've heard this sort of famous story about the 20%, right? Google allows employees to have 20% of their time to find what's new and next. And Gmail was born this way, right? Well, there's not a whole long list of things that were born that way. It's just the nature one of, of innovation or new, new business ventures. Like they fail a lot, right? That's how it should be. Two, people just don't have the time. And so even if you make that time, it's very hard as a practitioner to find it and to actually have some rigor on how you do it. So I would say a more mature organization could benefit from an innovation practice. The second thing I might say, though, is that even a younger company could benefit from it. But what I would argue is don't make it a, like, don't make it a, a function. Make it a part of how people work. And so when people ask me sometimes, like, who's on an innovation team? My answer is kind of funny. I'll say, well, marketers technologists, strategists, designers, researchers, business strategists. I mean, everybody is there. It's just that we use methodologies and techniques paired with risk assessment and, and almost risk profiling that helps people take bigger leaps. And again, in your normal day-to-day job, you just, not, you just may not have to take those leaps. And so I think, I think there's a mindset and a method and a framework around it that you can teach and make it a part of your culture. And yet companies are still designed to optimize over time. So that, that's the tension, I think, that exists with innovation and, and sort of a, a normal running business of maturity. Totally, totally. Yeah, it's the, the practice of it that needs to be embedded sooner rather than later. Yeah, it's tricky, too, because, again, <laughs> uh, you know, I might be a really great CEO of an early stage company, but a terrible CEO of a mature company because it's sort of it's just, it's just different, different accountabilities, different goals. Right. Shareholder management or or. Uh, Working in, in sort of the PR side of a super mature, you know, uh, publicly traded company, completely different than when you're trying to pry, you're trying to find product market fit. And so your leadership team and your practice leaders, I, I would argue, change over time. There are some people who excel at uncertainty. There are others who do not thrive in that whatsoever. I, I've learned that as a gift. I did not realize that. So the how did I get there doesn't make any sense, which is perfect, I think, for this podcast. I really, I swear, I really just wanted to be a comedian. That's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to do storytelling. I grew up watching comics like Richard Pryor and George Carlin when I was like 10. Shouldn't have been watching that. My parents were probably not happy with it. <laughs> that was going to be my yeah. comment. Was like, yeah. wow. Well, listen, uh, uh, the 80s and 90s, it was a wild time, right? Uh, it was a wild time. 
And so, uh, yeah, I just, I just storytelling, you know, having a, an impact on people by, by the truth that comes from comedy. And of course, great storytelling that comes along with it. It always enthralled me, right? I was just like, wow, I want to do that. So in college, I had no idea what my major should be or my minor. I just know I didn't want to really do college, but I did it because I'm like a first generation, you know, graduating uh, student of college out of my family. It was very important to go to college. But uh, yeah, I spent a lot of my time doing stand up and sketch comedy when I was in college. And so I said, well, maybe because sketch comedy, particularly what we were doing was around video production. I was like, well, maybe that could be a good tra- uh, trade craft, right? Maybe I could learn how to produce, write, edit, shoot, et cetera. So I ended up doing that as a major and really focused on producing, writing and editing. And then as a minor, I had uh, incidentally user experience design. Uh, and I was like, oh, that's really cool. And so I started to get a background in an actual like more formal design training. But of course, uh, had a deeper focus on true user experience. And um, this is in like the early 2000s when it's not that user experience was new, but I would say companies were just learning to embrace digital. And, and so user experience was still a new practice for them. When I graduated, I tried real hard to work in comedy uh, and, I, and just in the Atlanta market, it wasn't quite there, but we did have Adult Swim. So I don't know if you're familiar with Adult Swim, but Adult Swim is a division of Cartoon Network. And so they used to have sort of an adult version of, of comedy programming that would happen between like 11 and two in the morning. And so I, d- I definitely interviewed a bunch of times there. I, I have a funny story where I interviewed with one of their executive producers and a ninja. There was a person dressed head to toe as a ninja. Uh, they just sat silently. They didn't do anything as ninjas do. Uh, and they were very quiet in the that interview. And I was like, oh, it's really great to meet you, you know, bowed. And then we had a good interview, but they hired an internal candidate. So, you know, a little upsetting. But uh, it, Lindsay, it seems like you you were very familiar with Adult Swim. It was the job. This is the coolest job. It was writing the black and white bumps in between oh, all wow. of the, the programming. So I was like, man. I'd be great for that job. Didn't get it. So I fell into advertising uh, and and Atlanta, Atlanta had a, a huge advertising agency market. I think at the time it was like the third largest communications market in the US. And so advertising was everywhere. I didn't really have a passion for advertising, but I had a passion, of course, for creativity and storytelling and sort of kind of check the boxes. So I joined as a designer, uh, was able to use a full set of skills, everything actually from video production and directing shoots all the way through to designing websites. At that time, uh, again, this dates me, but it's fine. I love the dating. I don't know if you remember, there was a lot of virtual hosts on the internet back then. Everyone's like stepping out of the website and they're shot on a green screen. They're like, hello, welcome to Bank of America's website. I just want to welcome you. I'm like, what is this nonsense? And why are people literally walking on a website? It made no visual sense. But here we are. So I did a lot of those early on because that was like the thing that, that people were real into was like walking on a website. Actually, I think we need one of those for the show if you want to help us out. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, like what's old is new. Maybe like the Generals World website needs Millie yeah. like walking out on it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, everybody. <laughs> you might be wondering why I'm walking on the website. I am too. <laughs> we all are. <laughs> So uh, anyway, so I did a lot of that work and then eventually got into, I eventually got into producing actually. And so producing was sort of a, a hybrid between project management, operations and strategy because no one knew how digital worked back then. And so it was a combination of those disciplines. And already as you're hearing this very like generalist focused role, but at that time, I don't know that I knew what a generalist was but in a few short years later, I started hearing the term come about. And this is now like in the mid 2000s of where I feel like, huh, I don't fit the mold. And it was also very hard for me to nail down a title. Obviously, we go to resumes a lot and you're like, I'm a designer. And I'm like, but I'm not just a designer. I'm more than that. 
right? I'm a complex human being. I like storytelling. I design. I do strategy. Anyway, you get the idea. So it was, it was challenging to put myself in that box. And, and from a career standpoint, never had a mentor. It never made any sense of where to go. Eventually, from producing, I go more into strategic planning and strategy. And so that became a little bit more... I'll just say more fulfilling. I, I wanted to get a little bit away from the production side of the business. And then at some point I said to myself, wow, as a strategist, why am I trying to sell products to people they don't need? I don't get that. I don't like advertising. Surely there's something else. Uh, and so without a business background, I didn't realize there was sort of this entire other spectrum, right? So if marketing and advertising are on this side of the spectrum, well, like business planning and strategy and business modeling, all that lives over here. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I should go learn that uh, and go do something else. So eventually I found another agency that really focused on product, new product development, new venturing. And so with that started down the path of what is innovation. And so it actually came about in a weird way. The company was pretty large. It was about 100 people, I think, when I joined. Um, very, very software development focused. And there were a lot of corporate innovators who wanted to build new ventures that had digital product as the core. And so as we know, for startups, like digital can scale pretty well. And so they, they were having those ideas and didn't have the capability or the know-how to build those products. And so the company had found some product market fit that way. What was interesting was that over time, some of those clients started to drop off because they don't have a limited budget, right? I mean, these were seven or eight-figure business cases, but that money eventually dries up. What we started to learn was we need to go further upstream to find problems and domains that matter for these strategists, these entrepreneurs or innovators. And so one, I built a community at the time, it was a mouthful, y'all. It was called the, uh, what was it? It was the uh, the Enterprise Entrepreneurship Series. It was like an in-person event. Uh, it had all the buzzwords of entrepreneurship and enterprise. Yeah. Uh, and it was like, hey, if you're, if you're one of those people, like, come on over. And, and the premise back then, it's a terrible name. Uh, I promise we changed the name. But, but the premise back then was uh, I wanted to, make, wanted to make Creative Morning for innovators. And if you're familiar with Creative Mornings, uh, yeah, I see head nods. Awesome. Yeah. So it's a uh, it's an international you know organization. They try to set up speakers. For those of you who may not know Creative Mornings, you might even have one in your town. Maybe Inverness has one. I don't know. So started building that. Found it surprisingly easy to build. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't super easy, but it was a little bit easier than I thought. And it was for maybe two reasons. One was a lot of innovators come from, as I mentioned, all these different functional walks of life. They actually don't know how to be innovators. There was no playbook. There was no degree. There was no like master's class. Now today, there's actually a lot of that stuff that it's out there. But back then it was like, well, there wasn't, there wasn't a path for it career-wise. And there certainly wasn't a method that was widely accepted. And so I think some of these people were just lonely. To be real honest, like the the unmet need was around like loneliness, was around needing community. But more important, they got a chance to hear from other people who'd been successful. And each of those people, they also didn't know how they got there either. And so, so it was just really interesting. Like everyone's kind of wandering in the dark. And so over the next several years, we did that both as a business development tool, but also as a brand building tool. So the company that I was working for at that time called 352, no one knew who they were in the Atlanta market. They were well-known in Florida where they started, but all of a sudden, people who I'd never worked with before would say, oh, I've heard of 352. I was like, really? You've heard of 352? They didn't even know I worked there. Like, oh, yeah, I've heard of them. They're really good at innovation. I was like, holy shit. They think we're really good at innovation and we're still learning. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's what brand building is. How, how exciting. So started doing that. That became actually our customer discovery tool. We started to learn what pains existed from the audience. And along the way, I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to learn how to do research. I'm going to learn how to do experimentation. I'm going to have to learn how to size markets and assess viability. I wonder how you do that. I don't know, y'all. I just learned it. I just learned the stuff. It was real weird. So I became a researcher. I became a business strategist. 
And so it's again, very bizarre, but it's just like, I learned these things as capabilities that started to address a real need for the people we were trying to serve. And so then did that for a number of years, grew a practice pretty successfully, both in revenue and headcount. And then during the pandemic, which is the best time to have major change, I started to run the organization. And so I became managing director of 352. And um, you might note in my in my journey, I never, uh, I don't have an MBA. I didn't go to business school. I technically don't know how to run a company at this point in time, but I'm like, I should probably learn how to do that. And so I started taking some innovation principles of how to think about running and developing product and how to think about creating almost change management in companies. I was like, oh, I could apply those same principles to this. Thank God. So that's kind of the journey. And then eventually I decided to leave the agency world and, and go into on the brand side. So we can, we can unpack that more, but that's, that's the journey was not at all clear to me, you know, 20 odd years ago that I'd go from stand-up comedy and, and improv to, hey, you're going to be chief innovation officer. Like, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> well, you're, you're amongst the people who understand how to connect those dots. Thank you. So. I feel seen and heard. I appreciate that. <laughs> We've worked with different Fortune 500 executives really identifying these different and new market opportunities, whether it's pioneering a new venture, just kicking something off, those side of things. Is there a specific and tangible, perhaps tactical lesson that you learned about creating those meaningful organizational changes? It started with facilitation and workshopping. And believe it or not, those practices, and I'll get to the tactical area, those practices, um, I started building capability around because co-creation became a major way to build alignment, clarity, and confidence for the innovators I was working with. So imagine you, you know, Lindsay, let's just say you're a corporate innovator. You know, you may not know how to get from A to B, right? Like I know I have, you know, this goal. Uh, I'm still not sure how to find the, the path forward. Well, it probably wouldn't make you feel more comfortable if you hired an agency who just went away and then comes back and goes, aha, we did it. Ta-da. Here's our presentation. You didn't, you didn't really learn anything along the way, except you now learned our perspective on a path. You're not necessarily bought into it. And so facilitation started to become a, a key way or almost like a platform for us to build that alignment, build that relationship. And honestly, it was almost like experiential learning. And so when it came to you know how do you work with Fortune 500 executives or how do you get them more comfortable in it, the premise of, of facilitation, and, and I'm sure other facilitators may, may have different perspectives, but mine is there's sort of four things you do. So one is you're always trying to clarify. Right. There's a lot of work around clarification. Because sometimes, you know, if if our facilitating a session, you and Millie, you know, maybe you guys are both looking at a problem, but you see it from different perspectives. And so, you know, part of that is to clarify, oh, well, if Millie's looking at it this way and Lindsay's looking at it this way, what do we think that means? What, what, what do we think? How do we reconcile the two perspectives? And so a lot of it's feeling heard almost like a therapist, but the clarifying part is a big one. The second part is, is about defining. So we've gone from clarification to then definition. So, okay, so we can take a little bit of Millie's red sweater and a little bit of your black shirt. We say, okay, great. Well, maybe we can find the middle ground. Maybe we can define this in a shared and common language that helps everyone get where we're headed. And then that starts to build towards alignment, right? So we've clarified, we've defined, we've aligned on a path. And then what everyone's dying for is, well, what's next? So I don't know what's next. And then what's next is always scary. So a lot of the work I did with executives was really around that set of principles. Like if we can clarify, align, define, and get to next steps, it truly allows them to have a lot of confidence in what we're doing. 
The next part of it is around the workshop side of it. So facilitation, like, hey, I'm in the room, I'm improvising, I'm listening, I'm translating. The workshopping is an interesting piece. So a lot of people run workshops, uh, all manner and variety of them. I learned from someone who was real, real sharp at, at developing workshops, a trained facilitator. He was a good partner of mine. And the one thing I started to, to come away with it with, which is a really wild and tactical thing that I think could, could resonate with you both, workshops are about designing conversation. And I never thought about being a conversation designer until I started doing workshops. And I know it sounds really weird. It might sound real strange, but I promise that's what you're really doing. And so I used to, when I would, I would build a workshop, I would work with my team and we would say, like, what are we really trying to have them talk about? It's not, it's not forcing someone down a path. It's not puppeting anybody. It's not putting words in their mouth, but genuinely, like, what do we think will happen from, you know, 9 a.m. in the morning to 5 p.m. at night? when we're facilitating a really tough conversation? What's the emotional side of it, right? Are we talking about a really emotionally charged issue? The business is going under. The business is, you know, in the red. What does that mean? Like how how loaded and charged will that conversation be? Awesome. We're thinking about the emotional side of it. How do we go from a scattershot of thoughts to refinement? We have 50 ways we could grow. Well, we can't explore 50 ways. How do we help people have that conversation? So in a very tactical way, in my mind, if you think of workshops as designing a conversation, all of a sudden, maybe that changes why you're doing an activity, right? Are you trying to... A lot of people like joke with workshops, there's like sticky notes over the board. A lot of people don't realize that the sticky notes are actually a really safe way to create individual thought. In other words, uh, hey, Lindsay, Millie, Robert, we're, we're in a workshop together. I want everyone to take a few minutes and write down their thought about what's the most important activity we could be doing in 2024 for Generalist World. You're not influenced by Millie's thoughts. It's a tiny like little square. You don't have to write a paragraph. It's not intimidating. And you can make it anonymous. Like if you have a large enough room, hey, there's 15, 20 people. I want you to just submit your ideas to me. I'm going to take them to the board. I'm going to group them. And then we're going to talk about them as a team. You don't have to say who wrote what, but it's, a, but it's a heat map of what people are really thinking as opposed to an executive intimidating, maybe someone who's a director level in an enterprise organization. So you even the playing field with very simple activities. And again, I'm designing a conversation. People have to feel safe. They have to feel heard and we have to go from chaos to a little bit of structure. So I hope that's helpful, but that's that I found to be is one of the most rigorous ways to help an organization go from just, I'll call it sort of loose and chaotic conversation to a structured way to think all in support of trying to get to a path forward. I guess on that note, you know, as companies get bigger, we all know they get slower. So Robert, you are the king of frameworks, so I'm going to come back to the framework. So <laughs> That's a great title. I like that. King of frameworks. It's better yes, than CIO. chief innovation officer. Yeah, K-O-F, K-O-F. king of frameworks. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have a framework where that might be able to help um, larger organizations think and act more like a startup? Ooh. So this might surprise you. I, I do. It, it, at first, I was like, man, this would be a tough question. It is a tough question, but uh, I have an interesting answer. So recently, I've been talking a lot about values, a lot about company values. And I was on a panel recently, and it was the chief product officer of a company here in, in the States called CallRail. And uh, I jokingly said, we were talking about values, and, and I, I sort of made fun of him, and he pushed back on me. And I was like, well, but, but, but hear me out. So the company values and vision and mission, a lot of people look at and they like they sit on a wall somewhere. And the joke I used with him was like, there's like an eagle and it's like, fly high, right? And you don't know what to do with fly high, but that <laughs> eagle, it's, it's sort of inspiring, right? Um, and uh, <laughs> fly high. Uh, be, <laughs> there's like a bear. It's like, be aggressive. Be, anyway. 
So, so, so here's, here's the funny part, right? That was the funny part as well, but here's the funny part. So values, values is snorted. Uh, Values are actually ways to change behavior. So, so let me, let me play this out. Company culture, people often conflate for company and organizational climate. And so the difference is that climate is what it feels like to walk into work every day like who you work with, like how they treat each other, how they embrace or push back on ideas. But it's influenced, or at least should be heavily influenced by the cultural elements. So if you say, you know, the vision of your company is what's good for people is great for business. Well, maybe what that means is everyone in the company needs to be thinking about a human-centered way of improving people's lives that eventually translate into a business outcome, right? That's really cool. Well, if you only talk about the vision and mission as an example, one time a year during like the company all hands, well, don't expect people to do that because you're not going to reinforce a behavior. So that's number one. Number two, on the value side, we used to have a value of 352. Uh, it was it's, it was everything starts with inspired people. It's a really nice sentiment. I would push back on all of our leaders and managers and I would say at times, guys, in your one-on-ones, how are you reinforcing this? Are you asking them, what have you done this week to inspire your team? And if you're not doing that, well, don't expect your values to be followed. We have a value of Brightwell. Uh, everything is, is user first, right? And so we, we take that very seriously. And we actually bring in user feedback all the time. And we have folks who are trying to make sure from customer support through user experience, we're weaving that into our products. And so a way to answer it would be, and, and it sounds like a framework, and I think it is, is that our, our vision, mission, and actual values can be leveraged as behavioral influencing tools. But the way that they work is all through management. And so if your managers are holding people accountable to their values, well, maybe, just maybe, you see the behaviors you want. And what I would also say is this affects who you hire and this affects who you fire, right? If you're not living up to the values and you're actually holding people accountable to them, you can say, hey, I don't think you're inspiring others. This is a really important part of our company because if we don't, it means maybe we're not embracing new ideas. Maybe we're not bringing new uh, ideas or, or thoughts into the organization that impact where we're going. So, you know, as an example, you could say that quick is better than slow. That's one of our values, right? We'd rather, um, we'd rather be mostly right, but somewhat wrong. And we get code live, right? We, we push things out. The flip side is if we're all about perfection or precision, like if that were a company value, that might actually inhibit the way in which we move. So believe it or not, my, my, my true belief is that organizational change can happen actually at the value level. You just have to understand how it impacts the company and how you actually bring it to life. I used to, in my innovation team, we used to talk about our mission, vision, and values on a weekly basis. And I would have very candid conversations when I felt like some of our clients didn't live up to our mission and vision. I said, it's okay. That means we're just taking on revenue, right? But you need to hear me say this because if you think our clients are bad, but I never say that they're you know less than ideal, well, then you might think this is normal. And so you need to hear from leadership and we need to have a real dialogue out loud in front of everyone. This might not be a perfect fit, but that's okay. We're still a business. We still have to make money. But if we live up to our values, maybe we can navigate through it. So I'm a big believer in that. Well, clearly you're living up to your superpower, which rumor has it is questioning everything. I question a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have that in common. So I question why I question <laughs> things. It's, it's a whole, it's, it's a dirty, it's a, it's a vicious cycle. It really is. Rabbit hole. Well, if yeah. we're going to existentially spiral, right. we, can, we can buckle up. <laughs> but for our listeners, how, how can folks really think about asking better and or the right questions? Ooh. I think that's, it's a, it's a really good question. Specific. It's a great question about questions. I like that. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I'm normally fascinated by how people think about thinking. I know I sound so nerdy, but I swear like that I'm real interested by this. But how to how to ask great questions? Well, I think I think one of the one of the fundamentals, and it and it really is about psychological safety, and it's about feeling comfortable with others, is knowing that there aren't. I mean, everyone says it, it sounds trite, like there's no stupid questions. Truly, if you feel like you can ask a question in an open setting, I think it speaks a lot to your culture. I think it speaks a lot to your your management. And so just, just at a baseline level, not even asking like a smarter question, it really is, do I feel comfortable to ask it in the first place? And if I don't, is my manager doing something about, or, or frankly, even a peer, candidly, but like, is my peer or manager doing anything to pull me over and say, hey, man, I noticed you were silent during that meeting. And I really want you to know, like when I first got here, I had the same problem. I was, it was tough. I felt, you know, very self-conscious. Are people going to think it's dumb? I just need to tell you, like, it's totally okay to ask questions. Like you just, you need to be. So, so I think there's a cultural element just baseline for it. When it comes to asking smarter questions, there's a great book. I believe it's called Critical Thinking, um, Asking the Next Right Question. Um, I can send you all a link to it. It's, it's a great book. It's a good like intro to asking tougher questions and how to think. But for me, I do think one of the ways you can do it, particularly in business, I assume you're both familiar with the business model canvas strategizer mm-hmm. built it. It's a, yeah, it's a great little framework. It helps flatten out, you know, a business model and really see those components. I would make an argument that that could be a great sounding board for any business and for any practitioner to think about the business. So often what I'll do is the, the business model canvas can really be divided up into three sections, despite it having like eight or nine pieces. But one is essentially, how do we bring value to the marketplace? The other one is how do we create value? And then the final one is how do we make money? And so I would say in most situations, you have to understand those three components almost all the time. When you double click into the how do we create value for the marketplace, we're talking about, of course, how do we go to market our channels, the type of customer relationships we have, our customer segments, and of course, our value proposition, which gets into products and services. So it's interesting because that that simple framework that's been provided to you know strategy and innovation practitioners uh, through you know the company Strategizer, I think it just it provides a great springboard to start asking questions. The next part of it, I would say, which which again is is a great way to think of like where the where do the questions lie and why what is the relationship to each other. The the part that I would emphasize for innovation, but also just for any practitioner, is are we talking about a symptom? Or are we talking about a problem? Right. And people are really bad at that. Um, they're bad at identifying it. I think one of the reasons it's so hard is that when you're in a business, often what you're presented with feels very official. Like you walk into an organization and mm-hmm. someone says, you know, we're, we're losing money. Everyone's like, oh, we're losing money. That sucks. Right. But it's probably a symptom of something. Right. It could be about mm-hmm. the customer segments you're going after. It could be your products suck. It could be, you know, you don't have a good feedback loop. I mean, there's a million reasons. But when you go and you say, well, you know, revenue's down. I guess that means we have to make new products. Whoa, what a, what a weird leap, right? We, we just went from I, a, something that's occurring that we don't even know why it's occurring to let's go, let's go make another revenue generating thing. So the last little framework I might give, um, you all are definitely familiar with this, is like the five whys, right? It's like being a kindergartner, right? And just asking, well, why is revenue down? Does anybody know? Oh, that's weird. We should probably find that out. Uh, <laughs> oh, we know revenue is down because customers are unhappy. Well, why are customers unhappy? 
oh, well, they're unhappy because we uh, we made everything mustard colored. Um, that's weird. Every, just the type is mustard. The, <laughs> the background color is mustard. No one can read anything. The buttons are invisible. Oh, that's really weird. But at least we're trying to ask why. I don't know why mustard came to mind. Um, so so I, think, I think those types of frameworks help you ask smarter questions because you don't have to ask a long question. One of the mistakes I see people make is they ask very long multi-part questions and no one can follow along. You often get the end of the question, not the beginning. Just ask why, right? Why is it this way? Does anyone know why? And if we don't know why, what can we do to find out? <laughs> why? Right. <laughs> That's brilliant. I mean, there should, there should just be like five or six year olds implanted into mm-hmm. every company and organization. Sure. And we'd have so much more innovation. We would, we would have a lot of fun. Honestly, I think that sounds like a delight. <laughs> yeah. I read a stat the other day. It was like children ask more than 300 questions per really? day. Really? Wow. wow. That's incredible. And I have a seven-year-old and I was like, probably 500. (laughs) I think so. My my study is independent, but it feels like a thousand questions. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, though, I had had my daughter look at my website over the weekend when I was working on it. That's cool. I was like, tell me. What do you think about this? That's amazing. Did you get some good feedback? Does this make sense? Oh, yeah. She was like, this is too many words. (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. I would love to linger for just a second on these company values because they are circulating in my head. And the reason being, I think it can be a really fluffy thing to talk about, right? It's like when you're a founder, when you're building the company, you're like, I don't have time to sit down and write a document with these values that, as to your point, who's going to read them? What impact are they going to have? I'm just thinking from my own experience of building Generalist World, it kind of feels like values have almost organically surfaced, although I haven't gone through, naughty, slap on hand, like a process of actually developing them, defining them, putting them out there, reaffirming them with the team, all the process. But what is maybe the most effective or the best way that you have seen companies design values that actually matter to them? Yeah. I've only done a handful of workshops to design values. So I don't have tons of experience doing it in in ways that I could say like, this is the tried and true method. What I will say is you're in a situation where like, I'll put my little consulting cap on and I would say your team, to your point, knows what your values are. You've just never talked about them, right? Or you've never documented them. And so a really simple way I would workshop it would just be, hey guys, so I'll tell you what I want to do today. My intent, um, and we can get into like types of meetings and stuff like that. I'm real nerdy about certain things about facilitation, but my intent today is to build some community and advance thinking about values that could impact our organization. They, they impact how we treat each other. They impact who I might hire next. Um, and I believe, as the founder, this could help us grow, could help us scale, right? Whatever that might be, right? So the outcome for today is we don't have to make any decisions, but I would love to visualize what we think our values are, right? So you're sort of taking some of the stress away. We don't always have to make decisions in the moment. We can just look at things and evaluate but as far as we need to go. And so a really simple exercise could be, you ask everybody, what do you think are our values? And, and it could be as many as you think. It doesn't have to be 15. It could be your top five. But what, what do you really think our values are? And here's how, um, here's how I'd love for you to think about it. How do we treat each other? And how does, that, you know, how does that play into values you think we do? And maybe another way to say it is, why have we been successful? Think about that. Like, What about our success 
do you see in our behaviors? And I think you would see something that would be, frankly, uh, it, it, I mean, it's in a great way, like a blind spot. You might be like, oh my gosh, I have never thought of it in this way. And so what would happen, just like a sticky note exercise, everyone jots down one idea per sticky, put them up on the board, and you just see where the alignment is. I did this recently. So I'm, I'm currently running our sales organization. Um, and it's, it's a new part of the company. We didn't think we needed one to, to go to market. We definitely need one. And so I've been building this one. And I did a, I did a value exercise pretty identical to it. And, and basically said, like, what do you think we as a team need in order for us to be successful? Really open question. There's no wrong answers. I'm just curious what people think. There still was pretty high alignment around different areas, all in support of the fact, and, and I think this is very true of new ventures, we're going to probably fail a lot. Right? We're probably going to learn a lot. And so are there values that might keep us aware of that so that when we do fail a lot, we're not depressed. <laughs> we're not you know, morally beaten down into the ground, but it, but it is <laughs> really lie. thinking about like we probably as a sales team need to create a really supportive culture so that when we don't get a yes, because it will happen a lot, we're going to be okay. Right. And we know like leadership or management has our back. So, so I would just say that could be a prompt for you. I would also say another way to think about why it's so important. So on this panel I was on, I, I just mentioned recently where I made the eagle, you know, and, and everyone uncomfortable, uh, like fly high, everybody. Uh, on that panel, someone <laughs> asked the question, how do I think about scaling companies? And my answer was the same. So, so imagine, you know, Millie, how would you feel? I'll do a little facilitation. How would you feel, Millie, if tomorrow, Someone gave you, it doesn't matter, like $100 million and said, I want you to scale Generalist World to 1,000 people. And I'm going to give you an infinite <laughs> amount of resources to do it. So like, you're not resource constrained. We'll get them all hired. How, how challenging do you think that would be to scale a company where you don't have a centralized or aligned set of behaviors or values that you believe in? Really tough. You need that foundation of alignment. And I think one of the reasons that GW has felt so seamless and not effortless because there's been a heck of a lot of effort that goes into it, like a, a ridiculous amount of effort, but especially with the collaboration between the team. And this has happened maybe a little bit subconsciously. This feels like it's now turning into like a therapy session. Yeah, yeah it's, 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 I flipped it on you. It's okay. It's all right. It's going to be great. Lindsay yeah. and I are going to be great interviewers, Millie. Yeah. So um, I feel like a huge amount of the success so far has been the alignment of the team and the alignment of the team. The underlying thing there is that we all share the same, not work values necessarily, but like human values, which I guess they don't exist in a silo. And uh, that has made this process just so much easier. Mm -hmm. So I think that the challenge would be if I had unlimited resources, it would be scaling that culture of we have, you know, five or six people. It's really teeny, teeny, tiny. Everyone knows everyone to much bigger. That would be a huge challenge. Totally. And to your point, Millie, that is like, it hasn't been something that we've explicitly named, I think until recently, like you and I have been having these conversations and I've been thinking a lot about it going into the new year and really reflecting on, and I've said this to anyone who will listen. I'm like, but why can't all of my clients be like Millie? Why is it so easy to work with Millie? Why does it feel effortless? It's definitely not effortless, but why does it feel that way? Why am I pants on fire excited every single time I have a GW meeting on my calendar? It's exactly what, what you were just saying, Robert. It's really <laughs> getting in there and asking those 
better question. It's, it's super tough when you're scaling because you're, in my opinion, only I think you're trying to replicate what worked for you, right? We had a small team, team of three, team of six, team of 10, whatever it was. Well, how do I make sure my next team of 10 is just like that, right? And so, you know, when you're hiring, what are you really looking for? Are you looking for just someone who's friendly, <laughs> right? I mean, I'm being a little facetious, but like, like if we're really smart people, there's a lot of smart people who are assholes, right? Um, and so value-wise or culturally-wise, right? Like, what can you be doing to hire that person? Like, you know, if you said, if you said, hey, you know, one of our values is trying to inspire other people. And someone goes, oh, that's really interesting. They move on, right? Like, well, what do you think of that, <laughs> right? Like, what, what, what would happen if like cultural values were a part of the interview? Like, how do you feel about or how do you think you've contributed in the past to inspiring others? Well, I don't think I've really done anything on that. Okay, well, all right, that's okay. Like, totally cool, but that's one of our values. And so, yeah, you know, what would happen if you yeah. didn't? And so, so that's what I think is actually really hard about scaling companies. There's obviously the product market fit side of it. There's like technology that's tough to scale. I mean, there's a lot of tough, tough things to do. But on the people side, gosh, I just feel like that makes or breaks a company. And so people have like a vision and vision and mission to believe in. And then they have these natural boundaries that are around them, around culture. It just makes it that much easier to get to where you need to go as opposed to just saying, well, I hope we hired some really smart people. We'll see what happens. Yeah, you've got me psyched to go and bring everyone together and That's create amazing. these values. Right. I feel a sense of urgency. Let's go. Let's go. Let's do it. Let's talk predictions. What's your hot take on this mysterious future of work that we keep hearing so much about, whether it's through organizational design? innovation, that sort of energy. Well, so I have I have a bit of like an optimistic belief, despite some of the challenging things that are going on in our world, right? One of those beliefs is that AI will likely make it so that people can actually be better thinkers at work, not necessarily that AI takes over thinking, right? Um, I still think we as humans probably have a... Um, there's a little bit of ego and vanity of being the thinker, the inventor of something. And so even if AI could come up with the next best idea, which it probably could, um, I still feel like humans might still say, well, I really want authorship over that. So I do think that there will come a point in time and not so far off from the future where, for example, like a designer, there's always going to be like the handcrafted need in digital product for a designer to do what they're doing. But there's also design systems and patterns in place today that are endemic to our phones, to our tablets, to our laptops, where some digital products still fall, uh, uh, follow these patterns so much that AI could just accelerate that, right? And so then what you're really doing is you're focusing more on the thinking behind it. You're focusing more on the strategy, on the user itself. As opposed to just saying, I must handcraft every single pixel. So I think I think jobs like that, even engineering could go that way. We have in our world, uh, we, we often read and have to interpret API documentation from people who've done a very terrible job of writing API documentation. And so believe it or not, our engineers and our product managers spend a good bit of time writing user stories to then code that are actually hypotheses. They don't know it's going to work, if you can believe that. Um, and so, you know, we're in the, you know, uh, we're in the space of cross-border payments. And so it's very difficult to set up the payment rails for all this. Well, we could probably feed into an LLM, the API documentation. We could probably feed in our past user stories and likely past code. And we could probably crank that out in a much faster way. And yet the thinking behind it, I think, still is what would make these people important and, and, and needed in the process. My final tiny prediction, again, I don't know that these are big ones, but, but I would say my final prediction would be that 
I think there's still going to be a need either for more human empathy and community in work than ever before. I feel like the world, even though we're so connected, is still pretty lonely at times. And like, you know, this world of like hybrid and remote work, I don't think it's going anywhere. And so I just think the need for companies to build more, uh, I'll just say community and empathy and, and human goodness and how they produce what they do, I think it's going to become a differentiator for some companies because I think people just aren't going to stand for it. And so over the next 10 years, I think there's just going to be a shift to that where I think it'll be harder and harder to be this sort of archaic organization who you know has more of like a manufacturing perspective on anything they do, even if they're a tech company. So I do think there's some really positive forces that are going to shift change in the world. We'll just see what the timescale is. Before we let you go, because if not, I think we could both talk to you for the rest of the day. We do have a lightning round with every amazing human who comes on the show. An emphasis on lightning again, because if not, we all right. will be here all day. Two word answers. <laughs> oh, oh, let me. This is this is like playing uh, like uh, pyramid back in like the eighties. Like I'm just I'm just gonna close my eyes. It's like two words, like triangle triangle sandwich. We'll go. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Buckle up. Okay. Question number one: How do you define generalist? A, a person who has multiple multiple masteries in different practices. Mm. Ooh, I like that. We'll just we'll like <laughs> drop right there. My goodness. Ooh, what like is that. a product or a tool that's made an outsized difference to your career journey? Product or a tool. A whiteboard and a dry erase marker. Oh, hell yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> Same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just I'm just Finally. thinking like literally like that is transformational in, in some of the work I've done. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the last one. What do you wish that the world knew about generalists? They're the best leaders for your organization that you never knew you had to hire. Lightning. <laughs> listen, you told me I had to be fast. So I was like, listen, this is, is going to go. It's going to go. I'm putting that on my resume okay. when I start. I'm the best leader you never knew you should have hired. Yeah, that's great. Robert said. <laughs> Robert said. And he's a CIO. That's right. Yeah. So, that's right. Or, or a KOF. know what that right. is. <laughs> right. Yeah. You now you know, know kind of what it is. Yeah, that's right. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Robert, for sharing all of these so insights, many tips, tricks, all the things. Nuggets. I'm so yes. happy. Listen, y'all, I, I love I love what y'all are doing in a generalist world. You know, I'm a big supporter. So, you know, just keep on doing it. And uh, just let me know how I can help. Always happy to do it. And that's it for today's Generally Curious episode. Thanks for tuning in and exploring the world of generalists with us. Keep your curiosity alive and stay tuned for our next episode, where we'll continue to dive into the fascinating lives of those who dare to think and live differently. Differently.